Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your host, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. So this week on the pod, we're talking about um, infectious diseases in early childhood and the history of vaccinations. Is that right? That's what we're talking about. Super cool. And we've got a very special guest, our friend Adriana Fraser, who is a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, and her research focus is on infectious disease history. Right? Yes. Hi. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> Welcome to the pod, Adriana. Thanks. Happy, so happy to be here. <laughs> well, we are very happy to have you. So I guess starting out just to tie in why we have an expert on infectious diseases coming in this week. Yeah. This week, we have moved on past birth and infancy into the toddler years in our life stages. And, you know, uh, as as anyone who has interacted with small children knows, they pick up every single disease. They're gross. They're nasty. Everything goes in their mouths. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they are constantly sniffly, sick, catching something. And, you know, back in the day, uh, and by that I mean like pre-vaccines, this was a time of very high mortality rates for children because this is about the time when they start you know eating food that isn't breast milk this is when they start interacting with other people outside their you know immediate caregivers a bit more they maybe are interacting with the world more so they're being exposed to more germs more bacteria more viruses etc and they are able to get sick and because they have very small baby immune systems a lot of them unfortunately died of you know, these, these illnesses in the past. And, you know, for the most part, particularly um, with viral, um, viral illnesses, there really wasn't a whole lot you could do before the 19th century. It was mostly just try to provide comfort and, you know, ease the symptoms, but it was really just a matter of, well, I hope that they can fight this off. So now that you know the uh, history of that up to the 19th century, we're going to take it away with Adriana, who's going to talk to us about these diseases in the 19th and 20th centuries, how we got vaccinations, how they got distributed, what these diseases even are. And that's going to be the focus today. Awesome. Okay. Um, okay. So I guess I will start with question one. <laughs> so... <laughs> Start at the very beginning. Well, start it's at the very, very place to start. start. <laughs> when you read, you begin with, and 
ABC. Mm. <laughs> about viruses, you start with smallpox, polio, and malaria. Excellent. Great. That was just what I was going to ask you. <laughs> what would you say are the most deadly slash impactful diseases of the past in terms of mortality rates and devastation, etc.? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's actually a really tough question because it all depends on how you want to define like what impact is. Um, and especially when we're talking about like mortality rates, um, a lot of that depends on keeping records and counting. And that was done in many different ways in many different places and sort of getting a sense of what's going on worldwide is really tough. So I have selected four that I think are pretty important. Um, and those are smallpox, polio, malaria, and TB. Um, but there are lots more. And it's going to depend like where you are, what's common, where you are. Um, and, you know, big caveat, I've chosen because of the um, focus of today, I've chosen infectious diseases, but we could also talk about something like um, a nutritional deficiency or something like that, that kind of looks similar and has a huge impact, but isn't infectious in the same way. So my four that I've chosen for us today, smallpox, polio, malaria, and TB. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, you know, we were not expecting you to show up with, <laughs> you know, here is the entire catalog of every disease in human history. Yeah, so, yeah, because there's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, we could we could get into all kinds of things. Plus, you know, I mean, that's OK. I, the reason I brought that up is also because um, there's a couple nutritional deficiencies that people thought for a long time were infectious. Something like pellagra is a good right. example uh, of yeah. that, where a lot yeah. of people were like, oh, you know, this must be germ based. And then it turns out to be nutritional. Um, so that's why I bring that up. Uh, because especially if we're going to pretend that we are in the past, sometimes it's hard to like make those distinctions. Right, because, you know, with early germ theory, right, they're not necessarily able to, like, immediately isolate a specific cause, right? Like, Yeah, that's a fun thing about germ theory. So, I don't know, maybe a little bit of background on germ theory. The usual story that we get is, like, Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch and these um, German and French microbiologists start to think about illness being, or some illnesses being caused by little microorganisms, germs. And that gets into germ theory. So, um, but, but the shift from illnesses can be caused by little tiny microorganisms that we can only see under microscopes to identifying one for each particular illness takes a long time and it gets kind of messy. Um, Sonia, you were mentioning viral illnesses earlier. That yeah. it gets really tough with viruses because we can't characterize those until the 20th century. Can't actually get a look at them until we get like electron microscopes. So it yeah. takes a while for germ theory to kind of materialize into causative agent equals this particular disease. But it's absolutely how these people start thinking in like the late 19th, early 20th century. Right, because before that time, and I mean, even into the 19th century, there is still a lot of, like, miasma yeah. uh, theory basically going around. Which Yeah, there's a lot know. of it, and it's actually, this is one of my pet interests that I love. 
um, is that <laughs> we sort of love to think of germ theory as this like incredible moment where everything yeah. changed. Germs came on the scene and we were like, oh my God, this is how the world works. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't happen like that. Nothing ever happens like that. Um, so there is this really cool period of transition where people are thinking a lot about germs, uh, but they're also thinking in ways that are really consistent with earlier theories of miasmas or miasmas. I've learned the pronunciation depends on where you are in the world. Um, but so on, under a sort of miasmatic um, approach to disease, airing out is very important. And that just gets sort of repackaged as like air out the air that's full of germs um, in early germ theory. So definitely some continuity there. And it's kind of one of my favorite things, this like fun little transition point. No, that, that makes sense then that, you know, as you say, there's not this like light switch moment where it's like, well, on Monday, we all thought that everything was caused by miasma <laughs> and by an imbalance of the humors. And now it's Tuesday and we've decided it's all germs and the environment <laughs> has no bearing. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't know about you guys, but my mom was always very big into like airing things out. Yep. That comes straight from miasma theory. That's ancient, that idea of airing out for health. Um, and I mean, my mom was doing that in the 90s and the 2000s. It lasts a long time because... It works and it makes sense to us, but maybe to return to our big four or my big four. Um, <laughs> sure. Sounds um, good. I know you were, you, were one, you wanted me to maybe address like the causes, the symptoms. One of the reasons that I picked these four is we got two viral illnesses, one bacterial and one that's a parasite. Um, right. So smallpox and polio are viral illnesses. TB is bacterial and malaria is our little tiny parasite. Um, and... I am not a doctor, so I am no expert in what the symptoms are. Um, what I can tell you, though, is smallpox, unsurprisingly, you get pox. Um, polio, it tends to be mostly asymptomatic in most people, but the um, rare and like really um, intense complication is paralysis. Um, with malaria, you get fevers, tiredness, and, and one of the characteristic signs is like shivers and shakes. Yep. And TB, I think TB is pretty iconic. If you've seen any 19th century period drama, someone's coughing and like coughing up blood or something and they have consumption. Yeah. Uh, that's Wasting away, flushed yeah. cheeks, Wasting pale away. skin. Exactly. And that's and where consumption comes from because yeah. they're wasting away because they're being consumed. Um, I just always, to, to talk about the period dramas real quick, I also always appreciate how it's like the most delicate little cough. You know, it, it's always just... <laughs> into the hanky and not like you know the full body like racking coughs <laughs> as your lungs try to clear themselves but no I think it does reflect like you know, as we're saying at the time it was seen as this almost like fashionable thing like oh mm. you know I'm so pale and have rosy cheeks and I'm thin and beautiful like oh what a tragic illness but I also and it's like ro hot. romantic like capital R romantic yes. like Keats yeah. and Shelley you know like Oh, huh. which I'm being consumed by the drama of like my soul. Yeah, but that's actually a really fascinating thing to think about because <laughs> um, especially pre-germ theory, but even post, um, a lot of people are thinking about illness as like very intimately tied to your own particular self and your own particular constitution. So yeah. I'm a capital R romantic heroine and I have been heartbroken. I'm not going to mm -hmm. be as healthy 
as I normally would, and therefore I get sick. So this like romantic, again, capital R romantic trope of um, being heartbroken or, um, you know, devastated by some kind of loss and then getting sick and dying. Um, It doesn't, it works as a plot device, uh, but it also, (laughs) like the way that people at that time were thinking about illness as absolutely impacted by your environment and Mm -hmm. your like emotional, personal state. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's interesting that you mentioned that because we have talked about this before in terms of how, you know, it it was also a like racial and class distinction because obviously, you know, if you're an upper class white lady, like you need two weeks of bed rest at least after giving birth. Whereas if you're, you know, a person of color or if you're lower class, like you could, what, what do you mean you can't go back to work in the factory an hour after giving birth? What's wrong with you? Like, you should have a heartier constitution. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, like, that is vital to think about because even the first question that you're asking me about impactful disease, that's also, that's going to depend on where you are, when you are, and also who you are. If you are a racialized person, if you are a poor person, um, you are just, you're, a, probably going to be exposed to just more stuff, but different stuff than like a wealthy, um, I, for some reason, maybe because we were talking about uh, Shelly, um, I'm thinking of like um, some sort of romantic lady in a gloomy castle. Um, <laughs> you're going to have very different experiences of what illness is and how you're going to be cared for them and how you would imagine yeah. recovering from them. Um, yeah. yeah, so that actually kind of brings back in the idea of symptoms because again, in this era, your constitution is so important that the symptoms you have are more specific to you often than they are to the illness that you have. So now we think of like um, smallpox, everyone gets pox and they get this checklist of symptoms. Well, yes, everyone does tend to get pox when they get smallpox, but exactly how it shakes out and how you exactly experience it sort of especially pre-19 or pre-19th century through the 19th century, even into the 20th a bit, who you are and what your constitution is like will also impact your symptoms. Um, so that's an important thing to think about. Disease entities as unique things that stand alone and separate from the bodies that they are in is a post-germ theory thing. Um, right. So you need germ theory, this idea that this illness is caused by this one thing and it progresses in this particular logical way. Um, you need germ theory to get there. And so that only happens um, by the you know, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, but of course, caveat always, it's never a perfect smooth transition. It always gets a bit messy. Yeah. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, I think that there's also, um, as, as we've talked about, it's you know, there's different ideas of how illness is going to show up in children versus adults, right? Like if we're talking about, you know, here specifically, um, you know, childhood diseases um, that are basically very prevalent among younger populations who haven't necessarily developed that like robust immune system yet, I'm assuming there'd be some distinction with age or was there not? No, absolutely there is. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have any specifics on hand because, of course, it's going to depend 
on the individual child and the environment and the illness and all that, like whole constellation of factors we've been touching on. Mm -hmm. um, but absolutely, um, kids are different, obviously. <laughs> uh, in some ways, they're little mini adults, uh, especially in the 19th century. Um, if you think in terms of, you know, kids are going to work, um, in some ways they're being thought of as little mini adults. By the late 19th, early 20th century, the idea of like a childhood um, does kind of start to emerge for even average children. For upper class children, they've always had this period of childhood that's slightly different. Um, for a working class child, you know, as soon as you're old, too, old enough, um, you're working. Um, and the jobs that you do are, um, you know, actually tailored to like child size. Um, so people will be choosing to, I don't know, so many examples and none in the top of my head, of course. Um, no, no, you know, I, I know what you mean, right? Like with the, uh, like, like in coal mines, you know, where they're like, well, we need tiny little people who can go through these tunnels. Cause if we hire adults, then we'll have to make the tunnels slightly bigger. And that costs money. So we should hire five-year-olds to do this. Yeah, or like kids that can go under machines or like they yeah. have small fingers or stuff like that. Um, yeah, so the idea of, I am not a historian of childhood. Mm -hmm. There are some very cool people who do the history of childhood. Um, but the idea of childhood has this known... Um, time period in everyone's life that is particular and unique and has its own set of um, kind of rules and expectations doesn't isn't how should I say this it has its own history it emerges at a time and it comes from a time uh, mm -hmm. it isn't always there um, but kids getting killed by disease is <laughs> it's always there yeah um, yeah and I think especially in the 19th century and earlier, you kind of would probably expect that some of your children would die, um, especially with something like smallpox, uh, because it just kind of appeared every so often and it swept through everyone. And if you didn't, if you hadn't already had it, your chances of getting it were pretty high and it can be pretty awful. Um, No, I mean, that makes sense, you know, I mean, as we've said, right, like, that's why there is such a, you know, that, that's why a lot of these situations do focus on, like, childhood illnesses, right, because, like, yeah, obviously, you can get these as an adult, but it, they tend not to be as dangerous once you're older, because you do have, you know, typically, you're going to have a more robust immune system than when you are a toddler, basically. Yeah, and, and you've been mentioning also like um, after children aren't being, after they're not being breastfed anymore. Mm -hmm. Today, we think about that in terms of um, antibodies being secreted in breast milk. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, pre-characterizing those antibodies, they weren't thinking in, in that way. Um, but there was, even in the 19th century, like a lot of thought about the purity and the wholeness and the healthfulness of breast milk and being yeah. um, nourished uh, by mother's milk uh, was a very health was seen as a very healthful thing. So that connection was still sort of there, even if they're not, you know, thinking in terms of this particular IgM antibody is being secreted in breast milk <laughs> and all this stuff. Um, 
you are absolutely right in like identifying this moment after breastfeeding, but before kind of older adolescence where there's this particular window of vulnerability. Um, absolutely. That's, that's, that's going on. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and just to kind of continue on along since we've talked about the diseases, their causes, their symptoms, I did want to ask about, you know, what types of kind of treatments could people access, um, especially, you know, we'll, we'll talk about vaccinations for some of these later, but, you know, when you're looking at pre-vaccine situations, what are the types of, you know, remedies or help basically that would be available? Yeah. Um, the short answer is plants. Um, the long (laughs) answer is botanical remedies have this incredibly long history, um, Mm -hmm. kind of everywhere. Um, not just in Western medicine, just in general. Um, and so through the 19th century, even, even to today, you know, plant-based supplements are a thing. Um, and people take them, um, as medicinal things. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing to note is that especially in the 19th century um, and earlier, you've got a very, what seems to us like kind of odd division of labor between medical care. You've got three kinds of professionals. You've got the doctors, the physicians, mm-hmm. the surgeons, and the apothecaries, um, which, you know, kind of breaks down to physicians, surgeons, and pharmacists in today's thinking. Um, but you would probably go to your apothecary first to like look for some kind of remedy that they might have access to, or they might have their own special blend. Um, It's also really important to remember that um, apothecaries were men and Mm -hmm. there were a lot of women healers. There are household manuals that have lots of recipes um, for medicine. So um, if you're the woman of the house, you may have one of those handy, your kid gets a little sick, you like cook up a thing um, that either you know or you see in a book. Um, That's a significant source of medical care. Um, one thing also that's really crucial is to consider how powerful supportive care can be. So supportive care is a modern term basically means like you're going to take care of someone. And if they can't go to the bathroom, you're going to help them like get rid of their waste. And, um, if they have a fever, you might dab their face with a cool washcloth and like change their bedding and make sure they're eating and make sure they're drinking. Um, people have done this for many centuries, longer than that even. And this kind of care, nursing care, supportive care, um, actually makes an incredible difference in whether you live or not. Um, And so in terms of the kind of care you can access, that's not specific to any illness, but it is incredibly powerful. And that work is usually done by women, not exclusively, but usually done by women. And usually uh, before the advent of professionalized nursing, um, is usually done by female relatives. So your mom, your sister, your grandmother, um, some woman who you know and probably lives with you. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, especially with regards to, you know, the woman of the house or female relatives being the ones to take care of you. That's something that carries over from, you know, the middle ages and antiquity maybe further back um oh yeah sorry i'm interrupting you because i you know very badly forgotten midwives (laughs) (laughs) um another sort of like semi-professional well 
not quite professional in the technical term, but um, uh, a type of health caregiver um, yeah. that usually is actually outside your family, um, mm-hmm. but is not as professionalized as the physicians, the surgeons, or the apothe- apothecaries. Yeah. And when, just to, um, just for definitions, when we're talking about professionalized, mm. we in this context, right? Yeah. Because, you know, nowadays there are professional midwives, but at the time that was not available. Yes. When like I talk about Margaret for- that we talked to yes. in two Episode episodes before. Three. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm talking about professionals, professionalization, professionals, um, I'm talking about a, a sort of occupation or activity that has some kind of boundary around who can do it and what they um, can do, what they can't do, and sort of those um, parameters being defined by some kind of association, authority, a guild structure, especially in the medieval ages. Um, And this kind of, this idea of a professional, sometimes it's really useful to think of a professional um, is a category where someone is left out. Um, So someone doesn't make the cut to be the professional. Um, And in this case, the example of midwives is perfect because midwives are doing a lot of different kinds of work. but they don't make that cut of professional in the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, um, maybe into the first few decades of the 20th. Um, it's a different kind of professional uh, than maybe we would think of today, yeah. uh, but it means something very specific. So yeah, good for me to try and define that. Um, no, no, I just, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, there's, um, you know, and in the, even into the 19th and 20th centuries, right? Like when we're talking about professionalization, we're talking about like, you know, okay, there are formalized educational routes. You're getting Mm -hmm. formal exams and you have your board of certification and like that kind of thing versus, you know, midwives who at the time probably wouldn't have been, like there, there wasn't a like university you could go to for that by and large. And for most midwives, you would have been looking at, you know, on the job training essentially. So that's what we're talking about, I think. And I, I think it's important to define that, yes. I guess. No, it, it totally is, especially because like the um, training mechanisms, even for um, the professional, yeah. like maybe you can hear my air quotes there, um, <laughs> doctors is, it, um, it changes over time too. So in 18th, mm-hmm. 19th century, if you're a surgeon, you're learning through um, an apprenticeship type yeah. situation. You're not necessarily going to school at all. Mm-hmm. Um, by the mid to late 19th century, that changes. You do actually have to spend some time in a medical school, most likely. And then, you know, as we get further through the 19th century into the 20th, we get, um, you have to, you know, pass your exams, be board certified. Uh, that's the word that we continue to use often. Um, these are all steps towards more professionalization. Um, but maybe, maybe we can distinguish this by saying professionalization with a capital P, like romantic with a capital R. It's yes. like a, its own thing. Um, yeah, we sure. mean it in the, the most technical sense. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also wanted to ask, you talked about herbal remedies Mm -hmm. and supplements and that kind of thing. And, you know, this sort of proto nursing care, Mm -hmm. um, 
which, yeah, I mean, as we've, as we see more and more, like nursing is a huge indicator of, you know, what kind of outcomes your patient is going to have. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask about what they would have thought about something in terms of, um, you know, non, I guess, non-ingestible remedies. Mm. Like I do, you know, again, obviously I'm quite a bit earlier than what you're doing where I'm looking more. So at the middle ages and things that come to mind are, you know, a lot of the time they recommend baths, right? Like, Mm. oh, okay. Make sure you bathe someone in like lukewarm water or, you know, maybe they need to take a walk to help get the humors in order and that kind of thing. Do we see similar things carried into the 19th century with sort of like, I I guess, external treatments like that, where it's like, you know, bathing, washing yourself or your environment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The environment continues to be absolutely vital. So people get really interested in um, the environment of the sick room. So are the windows open? Are they not? What's the temperature? Do you have a fire? Do you not? What's the bedding like? Is there, are you wearing a lot of bedding? Are you not? Um, that kind of external environment still absolutely necessary and absolutely vital. Um, if you're, you know, not as debilitated, if you're not bedridden, um, and absolutely your doctor is probably going to tell you if you're sick to go somewhere to get better. So to change your environment completely. And this is actually where we get um, some of the history of spas um, is these are healthy places to go. And so you're going to take the waters. Exactly. You got to take, take the waters. Me, take and the airs. Yeah. Take the airs. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so you have, you know, at different times, these different locations getting, um, understood is very, very healthy. The seaside often is a big one. Um, yeah. And, and a lot, and water actually, uh, both of you have brought up water, water because it continues to be absolutely vital. You know, we can, um, think about spa waters, uh, bath is, is maybe a nice British example, but if you've ever bought a bottle of Evian or Vichy, um, or heard of Vichy water or Vichy skincare it comes out of the same thing. This idea that there's something special in that water. If you can go to that place, go, you will be healthier. Um, by the late 19th century into the 20th, um, if you can't go there, here, have this bottled water product and you can have a little bit of that experience at home. But changing your environment for health remains absolutely crucial. So the external um, maybe treatments is what we would now call them. I'm not sure that's quite the right term yeah, in the past, not... but that's the past is its own very complicated and, and uh, difficult thing, but absolutely the external environment is completely vital to your health. And sorry, uh, just to think about children, um, there were these programs, and, uh, but there were programs to take like New York City children, children in these large metropolitan cities in the early 20th century to take them out to the seaside because it's healthy there. And if they're, you know, living their whole lives in a tenement in New York, they're not going to be very healthy. They need to go to the sea and play in the ocean and play in the beach and take a hike and that will make a healthy child. Um, So things like that uh, for adults and for children are absolutely, totally, vitally important. Yeah, I find that fascinating because it, I mean, it sounds a lot like 
uh, medieval pilgrimages where it's like the same concept of people, especially if they were sick, would go, well, this place is very holy, so I'll get healing there. And you talking about spas actually just reminded me of how, you know, you see a lot of a lot of these like healing springs and healing wells and healing places that are associated with saints in the middle ages. And then they kind of fall by the wayside, especially in Europe in like post-reformation areas Mm -hmm. and times. Um, But then, yeah, the, in Alexandra Walsham's reformation of the landscape, great book. She talks about how the, how a lot of these exact same springs and like lakes and ponds and stuff end up being rebranded as well, actually they are super holy and healthy rather, um, but it, it's not because they're holy and there were saints associated with it. It's just because the water is so pure and good. So like we should recycle the, the same idea essentially with like a, a fresh label over it. Yes, and I, when you get to North America, you get this really interesting layering as well of um, sort of past mystique. Um, you get uh, these spa hot spring resorts. Again, <clears throat> water continues to be a central theme, um, but but a lot of them in their marketing uh, tend to really try and sell the, this is a Native American secret for healthfulness and life. And for thousands of years, the, I'm going to use a historical term, the Indian has, you know, uh, been made healthy and vitalized by this ancient hot spring nestled in the wilderness of North America. Um, You get some of that going on. So this kind of history of mysticism and um, folklore, magic, uh, holiness, that kind of idea, uh, you know, it reappears uh, in North America um, and, and pretty much everywhere you go. But health and sort of spiritual well-being long history and sort of spas and um, health health retreats and resorts. Absolutely. I think it's interesting too, just to harken back to one of our older episodes that we had, how much this like pervades so many different parts of our life now. Like we can talk about why is there a summer vacation at schools? And it's because of those, the ideas around those programs that you were talking about, where it's like, so many wealthy people lived like on Manhattan uh, or Long Island and the when it gets hot oh, well Sonia you're it's starting to get hot in New York City right mm-hmm. it is a terrible place to be when it's hot it smells so awful so like they would leave and go up to the Catskills and stuff and it was just like impossible to continue to run a school if all of the people who are actually paying to go to school are no longer there uh, for the summer. So like, why don't we just have a summer break? It didn't really have anything to do with agriculture, but the idea that you have to get away from, away from the hot stifling city air, especially in the summer. Yeah. Um, to the cool cat skills. Yes. The fresh air. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to the air. seaside. Yeah. Yes. Or into the mountains, you know, get, get the pure air. Yes. And to sort of bring us back to infectious disease, you get the exact same thing happening when there's any kind of outbreak or epidemic going on. Um, People just leave the city for obvious reasons. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. want to be stuck there. Um, But also, you know, it's so tied up in exactly what you just said, Margot. Um, 
you got to leave this unhealthy environment to go to your healthy environment if you are rich enough to have one. Or sometimes in the case of, of uh, an epidemic, even if you're not rich enough to have one, you just get out of there um, and try and get into an environment that uh, feels A, healthier, B, safer, um, or actually uh, healthier and safer. I don't want to necessarily separate those two things because they're so intertwined. I mean, we're seeing that right now with COVID, you know, with all the people, oh, yeah. so many people leaving the city and, you know, going, well, it's it's not healthy there. I can't, you know, I can't stay there. I have to go into the country or into the suburbs. I'll go stay with my parents because they live, you know, further out or I'll go to my grandparents and go to their house in the country. I would like to point out all three of us just dug in our heels and we're like, absolutely <laughs> not. We're not leaving the urban environment. Come at me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah um, I've heard, especially, I think I remember some of the coverage of this, that New York uh, saw this in particular, that especially when COVID first hit and it first hit New York pretty badly, yeah. people just left. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's, I mean, again, one of those incredible continuities over literally thousands of years is change your environment, get out and go somewhere that's supposedly healthier or more isolated. Um, Definitely something that we saw uh, with COVID, and we'll continue to see. I, I don't, I don't envision this kind of uh, response stopping. Uh, <laughs> seems like a thing that humans tend to do. Yep. I will say, as someone who's lived in New York for a good chunk of this pandemic, uh, fewer people in New York City has been <laughs> kind of great. Uh, I saw Times Square completely empty. There were like two other people there. You can get a table anywhere you want. New York isn't dead, everyone. It's just a more reasonable number of people. That's my take. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Times Square is famously packed. So yeah. the, the, all of those photos and it's videos surreal. of deserted Times Square are very, very striking. Yeah. Yeah, very much so, but we can circle back to vaccines if you like. Yes, that is what I wanted to talk about next because dun, 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 we have all now, I think, been fully vaccinated as well for yeah. Corona. Yeah, uh, almost. Oh, okay. I am still in Quebec, so I have two more weeks, I think, until I get my second one or I schedule my second one I don't know because nice. uh, I can it was it's scheduled for August but I can move it up I think to the beginning of July so uh, yeah um, it's good. um next week I, I I'm totally fascinated by COVID vaccines I mean we'll get into this maybe when we talk a little bit more about vaccine history but I cannot there are no other vaccines that I know of that we are willing to accept this much side effects. Um, so the COVID vaccine side effects are not terrible. Not everyone gets them. Um, but in terms of a flu shot, if a flu shot had the potential side effects of these COVID vaccines, it, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be happening. Um, so it's just, I, I just find it a really kind of fascinating um, phenomenon and uh, an interesting indicator of how vaccines fit into this idea of risk and how we want to weigh our risk and what's acceptable in what context. Um, so that's, yeah, my little 
vaccine history thoughts uh, on COVID because no one would accept a flu shot that, that, you know, for some people left them in bed for two days. I speak from my own experience on Moderna round two. Um, I was very happy to get it, but um, could you imagine an H1N1 shot that, that would make people miss work? It's just not gonna happen. Um, yeah, you can cut all of that out if you want. <laughs> I don't know how well, I would, I'm, no, I think I'm interested in contextualizing be that because yeah. I like if we want to start talking about vaccines, we can talk about early smallpox inoculations where yeah. like the risk there was yeah, yeah. significant. Um, yeah, maybe we can circle back to that point at the end. Might be okay. An interesting thing, or yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, how, not however you want to. I I don't yeah. know. You guys have a podcast. How do you want to organize this conversation? I mean, like, yeah, we can start talking about vaccine history. I think, Um, like, vaccine history and vaccine hesitancy mm -hmm. go hand in hand, you know? like they do. I think it's a really interesting topic because, you know, you're completely right. If someone was like, oh, yeah, like, here's this flu shot that gives you flu-like symptoms for three days. That was my second shot of Pfizer vaccine (laughs) experience. Um, Again, very happy to have it, though. but. It, it is that question, right? Of like risk reward situation where I'm like, yeah, would I take it for like the flu? Yeah, probably not. But am I willing to take it for COVID, which is like way, 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 way worse than the flu? Yeah, Shut yeah. up everybody who is saying, oh, it's just the flu. Like, get out of here. Like, yeah, it's, it's, no, I don't want to get fluid in my lungs and yeah, have yeah. to go on a ventilator. That's a whole other level of mm-hmm. stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Another thing with COVID vaccines, I just, I don't think that a flu shot that had this array of side effects would even have been approved. Um, The COVID vaccines went through an expedited approval process um, for obvious reasons. Um, We wanted them and we needed them. Um, And and to be clear, I also just want to cut in. It's all based on like, like 10 years-ish of SARS- Mm-hmm. variant research right mm-hmm. like j- just for because I feel like I've seen a lot of stuff circulating online with vaccine hesitancy where people are like but it got like they just made this up within a year and it's like they did but also we've been you know there's been a lot of research done on vaccines for this type of virus yes and and especially the, i think in canada since the the sars outbreak in yes, 2003 yeah. yes yeah. so um, it's been a major focus for vaccine research yeah it absolutely was and and one thing to remember uh to my undergrad in virology uh so you're going to get a little bit of uh, virology in here but um what we call coronavirus is a coronavirus. The coronaviruses are a whole family of viruses, which is why this particular one is called SARS-CoV-2, not just coronavirus. And families of viruses, um, or, or no, not families, they're actually you know, species, genera, that kind of uh, categorization, but yeah. um, they tend to behave similarly. Mm-hmm. So pox viruses behave similarly. Um, Flaviviridae <laughs> right. uh, behave similarly, and coronaviruses behave similarly. Um, another thing, again, history of medicine thing to bring up is um, the last time, the, the mechanism for expedited FDA approval um, came about because of AIDS. 
Um, And, you know, people were dying of AIDS and the approval process for drugs was incredibly slow. And and there was a lot of activism like ACT UP um, and the LGBTQIA++ uh, community. Um, They wanted drugs and they wanted them to get approved faster because they had nothing. So this idea that faster is worse you know, if you look at history, that's, you know, it, it doesn't hold up. Uh, we, people want something um, that's going to help them and that works. And um, the incredible amount of money that was poured into COVID vaccine research means that things can move quickly. So um, yeah, that's just, again, uh, to add to, add a little historical perspective on expedited approval. It's because it exists because people wanted AIDS drugs yeah. um, and they weren't getting them and they, we're very, very angry about it. Um, and that's the mechanism that we have uh, for Moderna, for Pfizer, for Johnson & Johnson, for AstraZeneca. I don't know. How many more are there? Um, there's a I think lot. it's just those four for now. I think so. Um, I mean, but yeah, while we're talking what's about been vaccines, approved in the U.S. Yeah. and Canada, at least. Yeah. While we're talking about vaccines, though, maybe this is the time to uh, rewind back few centuries and go to the very first vaccine, um, which is smallpox, the smallpox Mm -hmm. vaccine. Um, So this is a bit of history that I really enjoy. Uh, So I may have a lot to say on it. So feel free to stop me at any time. Um, But uh, the general story for um, smallpox vaccination is that in the 1790s, this guy named Edward Jenner He was a country doctor in Gloucestershire, England, and he was going about his doctoring life and he noticed like all these cow maids, these people who are milkmaids and work in dairy farms with cattle, they don't have smallpox scars. What on earth is going on here? Um, And he observed that they um, actually did have kind of pox lesions sometimes on their hands. Um, And they called this illness cowpox and they caught it from the udders of cattle when they were milking the cattle. Um, But if someone got cowpox, they then didn't get smallpox. And Jenner sits there and thinks, hmm, this is very interesting. Maybe what I can do is artificially give people cowpox so that they don't get smallpox. And that's what he did. He took um, these pox pustules, uh, they're pox. And if you cut one open, some like fluid comes out um, called lymph. So what Jenner did is he took some lymph from a cowpox pustule and then made a cut in a boy's arm and rubbed that lymph into that cut. Uh, And then the boy um, developed a little pustule, a pox at that site, uh, eventually went away. But then the boy was immune to smallpox. Jenner tried to infect him with smallpox and it didn't work. Um, So this is the general story of vaccination. Jenner had this incredible idea Um, And once he had found that this um, process of sort of rubbing that cowpox lymph into a scratch worked at making, uh, generating smallpox immunity, that he was like, okay, we must all do this. And everyone gets um, this procedure, which he called vaccination. Uh, The vax root comes from cow. So uh, if you're French, vache, uh, the V-A-C, it's the same root word. Um, So that's actually where the word vaccination comes from. how it gets uh, expanded to encompass all of these sort of pharmaceutical products that aim to create immunity to something before you get that something comes a little bit later. But that's the general story of vaccination. 
Um, it's full of mistakes. It's full of lies. Uh, so, so what's the true story? The true story. Uh, Jenner true, absolutely, quote, yeah, true. Jenner absolutely did all of this, uh, and he publishes his results in a 1798 pamphlet called "An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Variola Vaccine." Um, and uh, people in Britain, uh, Parliament, get very excited about it. Absolutely, all true. Um, but noticing that people who got cowpox didn't get smallpox, not Jenner's thing. People had known this for ages. Um, and trying to artificially induce uh, cowpox through that like cut in the skin, also not Jenner's thing. That process of taking that little bit of lymph and then rubbing it into like a, a scratch or a cut in the skin, um, that's actually called inoculation. And for centuries, before Jenner, people had actually been doing that with smallpox pustules. So someone would have smallpox, probably a mild case, you'd want a mild case. And you would, again, open one of those pox, harvest the lymph, and then find the healthy person, a child, an adult, anyone, um, make a cut or a scratch, rub that fluid into the wound, you'd get a pox at that site. And usually, um, through that procedure and not the sort of natural catching smallpox way, people usually didn't get full-blown smallpox, but they did get immunity. Um, so that process of inoculation, as I said, has hundreds of years history, um, especially uh, in Asia and Africa, less so in Europe. It comes to Europe in the 1700s uh, via Turkey and also uh, it comes to America and then Britain interestingly, partially via an enslaved man named Onesimus in Boston. Um, basically, the point is that process had been going on for ages. So Jenner doesn't invent that either. And he doesn't actually, he's not the first person to make the connection between, hey, let's try this inoculation process with this cowpox limp. There's this other guy who does it like 25 years earlier. Um, so <laughs> the story of Jenner kind of being the father of vaccination and you know, saving us from smallpox, not entirely correct. Uh, what Jenner does do, however, is he's a master of PR um, and he's a master of spreading this idea. So he talks to parliament and he talks to a whole bunch of um, basically the British gentry and gets them on board. And then within 50 years, Britain's got its first compulsory vaccination uh, act where everyone has to get vaccinated. Um, and again, that's because Jenner and his uh, associates and his allies um, start convincing like the upper class people that this is a good idea and everyone should do it. And that it then should be mandated. Um, if you don't want to do it too bad, um, it's good for everyone. So that's the story of the first vaccination, slightly abridged, although not entirely. Um, I feel like that's always the case that it's like, oh, here's this story that everyone knows, but this isn't actually a story about this guy. This guy just knew how to sell this idea really well. And that's why everyone remembers him. 1000%. Um, <laughs> as a historian of medicine, there's a lot of people who get called the father of X, father of vaccination, father of bacteriology, father of cardiology, takenology, orination, there's a father. Um, and these stories are usually kind of of the exact same type. Like, yeah, that guy did some stuff and he got his name attached to it. 
Um, but it's never that simple. It's not all these dudes being geniuses in their little labs and their lab coats and they have an aha moment and the world changes. It's not how it works. It's always more complicated than that. And there's always other people involved. And often the people who get left out are um, people of color or women. Um, I mentioned Onismus uh, through Boston. So the um, inoculation uh, in Boston, there's this guy named Cotton Mather, Puritan dude. Um, and he hears about inoculation and he asks this man, this man who uh, is enslaved. And Onismus says, hey, uh, yeah, I've, this, I've had this procedure, so I can't get smallpox anymore. Um, so that's how... Uh, uh, inoculation gets into Boston, and then um, Mather ends up convincing a local doctor to do basically a little inoculation trial. Um, and then uh, through Turkey, so uh, the other route um, where inoculation gets to sort of Western Europe is through Turkey, and that's through uh, the wife of a Turkish ambassador named Lady Mary Worthley Montague. Um, so these figures, uh, literally a person of color and a woman, are vital, vital, vital to the story. And in the father of story, they're completely absent. So general history of medicine thing, it's always more complicated. There's always more people involved, and that's where the interesting stuff is. Yeah, I'd say just history in general for being That's honest. True. It's always like, yeah. yeah, here's this really simple narrative that we've been told. And then you're like, yeah. really? Fun part, finding the other bits of the story. Um, yeah. So that's how, that's the first vaccination. And that's, as I said, um, where the word vaccination comes from, comes from cow because uh, of cowpox. Um, I do love the idea that this is essentially called cowination. Yes. Yeah. And, and some Just of the early, cute. some of the, um, so as soon as we have to get cowified, yes. <laughs> but as soon as vaccination comes out though, people are, un, are like weirded out by this. They, there, there's a very famous cartoon, political cartoon by James Gilray, where people are getting vaccinated and they're sprouting cows from their faces. And there's like, they're worshiping cows and everyone's obsessed with cows and someone's mooing like a cow. Um, this idea that, uh, of oh, like right. isn't this the, the minotaurism? I don't know if it's the, it's not, no, it's not the minotaurism. It's a slightly different one because Jenner is there and he's vaccinating someone. And then off to the side, like someone's got a cow coming out of their nose. Um, isn't there one where like, if you get the smallpox inoculation, you're going to like, if you get the vaccine, then you're going to, uh, your, is it your children will be minotaurs? Yeah, so basically, it, it's a whole <laughs> genre. People, especially early on, people are really uh, uncomfortable with this idea of putting this cow matter, this stuff that um, comes originally from a cow, from cowpox, uh, into your body and sort of violating that human-animal boundary gets really dicey for them at that moment because we're in the late... Um, 18th century at this point. So things like the great chain of being and this like human animal divide are very, very strict at this moment. Yep. Um, not that they're not powerful after that, but especially at this moment, the idea of crossing that boundary of human and animal really makes people uncomfortable. Um, but that's actually kind of an interesting Because right, like the, the cells are going to reproduce yeah. inside of you and turn you into a cow. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> so you're gonna become that's how it cow works. Like. Yeah, mm -hmm. true story. We're all gonna become COVID like. 
Oh, yeah. I, for one, am ready to uh, travel, travel everywhere <laughs> and cause trouble. Just be a little mischievous COVID spirit. Yeah, you know, just like shut down a few countries with my antics, you know. Kill a few, you know. Maybe. Okay, yeah, that, that's fair. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, that. That's why it's just a little COVID. Yeah, just a little I, bit. I don't want to be full COVID-like. I just want to be like a, a little mischief. Yeah, I, I would like to be able to travel places. Yes. Um, for sure. Um, I guess the next kind of thing would be to talk about the inoculations for polio and TB. Mm. Yeah. Because so- I think malaria, they just came out with some form of vaccine or it's in the works or something yeah malaria doesn't really have one except maybe this very recent one Um, we have anti-malaria drugs yes um, but malaria remember is a parasite so it's a slightly different thing and that's one of the reasons why it's tougher um tb is also kind of similar there is a tb vaccine but how effective it is and where it tends to be used tends to vary Um, polio though Absolutely. We have a polio vaccine story. And this is the Salk and Sabin story of the 1950s. So basically, these two guys in the States are independently working on a polio vaccine um, with different different strategies for how to get there. Uh, You can make a vaccine in a lot of ways. And they take basically two different ways. One goes to something called a live attenuated, and the other one goes to a killed vaccine. Um, But... uh, yeah, polio, we get our vaccines in the 50s. <laughs> I get incredibly abridged compared to my smallpox vaccination story, but it's the first one. I got to, uh, we got to spend some time there. Um, so uh, with polio vaccines, one of the things that gets totally fascinating um, is that who starts using the Salk vaccine and who starts using the Sabin vaccine uh, depends on where you are in the world. So uh, the Western countries, quote unquote, the US, Canada, most of uh, Western Europe, they use one, um, but Russia, uh, the Eastern Bloc, anywhere that is sort of related to the Iron Curtain, um, they get a different one. Um, so I actually found out recently that my parents probably got two different polio vaccines because one was in Canada and one was in Yugoslavia when they got them, mm-hmm. um, which I find totally fascinating. Um, yeah. Sonia, would your parents have different ones then? Yes, they would actually, because I know, Adriana, does your mom have a little like mark on her arm from where you got it? Yeah. 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 Then my parents also have two different ones. Um, The polio vaccines, one of them involves, yeah, uh, a kind of a little, actually kind of similar to um, smallpox, like a scratch and ejection kind of site. Uh, The other one involves drops. And so often you'll see uh, those images of those drops being like dropped into a kid's mouth or in the fifties and sixties, especially they were put on sugar cubes and handed out to kids. Um, Yeah. So two different routes of administration and two different uh, sort of government systems choosing different ones. Yeah. And with polio um, with when we're talking about that, there doesn't seem to have been at least to my knowledge, I did a grad course on, like, I, I had a grad course where we were doing, like, modern history, and I did a whole research paper thing on the history of polio in Canada, but there doesn't seem to be, at least to my knowledge, 
as much in the way of hesitancy at that point. Mm. Yeah, it's specifically it seems because of how devastating polio is and yeah. like how how scary it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um smallpox is incredibly scary. Mm-hmm. Kills a lot of people. Um polio uh is usually very benign. I don't want to say mm-hmm. benign. It's usually mostly asymptomatic, but yeah. in some cases, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, can cause paralysis and ascending paralysis. So basically it'll start with your feet and your legs and eventually get to your chest where your chest is so paralyzed, you can't breathe because you can't expand those muscles and you can't expand your diaphragm. Um, the solution to this in the 50s and 60s in this mid-century moment is something called the iron lung. Uh, you may have seen some photos of this. It's basically an enormous metal tube and the person lies in it and their head is out and it's sealed around their neck. Um, and so uh, with modern ventilators, This is a huge simplification for how ventilators work. Um, But essentially the machine pumps air into your lungs um, and then your lungs expand and take that in and then uh, the air comes out and and, um, your chest sort of deflates, your lungs deflate. Um, In the case of an iron lung, what you actually do is you change the pressure in that tube, which forces the chest to expand and take in air Um, And then you change that pressure again. So um, it's like a positive pressure, negative pressure thing and like where the pressure is being exerted. Um, Anyways, uh, I mentioned this because with COVID, of course, there was a significant need for ventilators. And there were some historians saying like, hey, guys, remember the iron lungs? There's still some around if we need them because they actually work incredibly well. Um, Yeah, they have a different level. It's a different level of risk. Yes. Because you can't. So they're, they're huge and you obviously can't access the body, but um, they don't, they don't, the, the lungs are still mostly functioning naturally as opposed to getting stuff shoved into them. So you don't have the damage to the, your bronchial tubes and the, the inside of your lungs that you can get from being on a ventilator for a really long time. Exactly. Um, yeah, that, exactly that, that pumping action can cause damage to your lungs. Whereas an iron lung literally forces your body to expand. Yeah. Um, and so you don't get that, um, which by the, the way, being that you have to live in a tube for your entire life, which is like massive and heavy and can't be transported. And you have to be lying mm-hmm. prone and yeah. there, there are issues about lying prone and yeah, obviously living your life. You can't like attach you can't attach an iron lung to a wheelchair. Yes. Yep. Yeah. No. Um, like yeah. There's this is this is a diversion or like a little digression, but there's actually um, a really interesting entry into the history of disability here. So there's an early disability activist um, at Berkeley who needed an iron lung to uh, breathe. I'm blanking on his name, which is awful. <laughs> um, can look it up later. Um, but he needed an iron lung to breathe, but then he couldn't go anywhere. Um, and so what he did is he trained himself to do something called frog breathing, which I don't exactly understand how it works, but it's a way of sort of expanding your chest artificially um, outside of an iron lung. Um, but the fact that he had to use an iron lung became like really, in, really vital to the disability movement. Cause like, where do you house a student who needs an iron lung in their dorm? 
um, becomes a part of how do we access this? What is the disability community here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So little digression, and I should know his name. I've forgotten it. Um, but absolutely, the fact that it's so large has a lot of, obviously, a lot of consequences. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and with ventilators today, if you've ever heard of like a ventilator weaning program, it's because of that damage that can be caused to your lungs. You can't just take someone off a ventilator. Um, sometimes when you do that, they, they, they have lost the ability to breathe. So you need to wean them off. Um, and this has become, obviously in the, in the time of COVID, weaning programs are even more important. Um, yeah, so little digression into uh, ventilators. Um, but very, uh, very important to polio because what happens with polio is you have a vaccine, no more iron lungs, no one needs iron lungs anymore. Um, and no one's got paralysis anymore. So in terms of resistance. Um, well, the, no, one, no one's got paralysis yeah. from polio. No one's got paralysis <laughs> from polio anymore, exactly. <laughs> there um, are plenty of other ways to be paralyzed and or have limited mobility. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so I... People were definitely afraid of their kids being paralyzed. Again, we can, you know, have our moment thinking about disability and the stigma of that. Um, so, you know, a lot of the non-hesitancy around polio, we can actually think of it as a, as a sort of negative response to the concept of disability. Like, I don't want my child to be paralyzed. I don't want my child to be disabled. And therefore, I will get this vaccine. Um, so that's sort of a really interesting part of the process in terms of thinking about, okay, well, how does... Um, how do uh, medical systems, how does Western medicine use disability as this fear-mongering tool? Um, it's an unfortunate fact, and it, and it happens um, in the history of polio. Another reason there's, I think there's less um, hesitancy around uh, the polio vaccines is the moment. So we're talking about the 50s, 60s. Um, this is a moment of incredible optimism about medical interventions. People, we're starting to get antibiotics and we're starting to get all these new drugs um, and things that killed people in the past are no longer killing people. Um, and, and the rate at which these new drugs and antibiotics and these therapies are coming out, people are thinking like, oh, we're going to conquer everything. We're going to kill off all the infectious diseases. We're going to totally be fine with all of that. Um, we're going to rise above all of this. So there's a lot of trust and optimism and excitement about biomedical uh, interventions like vaccines. Um, we don't have that same sort of excitement about medicine in the future today. Um, so you know, we can think about um, how excited you might be to get your polio vaccine as part of being excited about medical progress. Um, that's uh, part, of, part of the thing. And, and an interesting sort of tie in there is by 1970, smallpox is gone. This is also the area in which, or the era, sorry, in which we get the smallpox eradication program by the World Health Organization, um, where uh, actually by the end of it through some really kind of sketchy tactics, they vaccinate um, everyone around uh, who's around a smallpox case and eliminate it from the globe. So again, that sort of incredible optimism, we will have mastery over infectious disease and these will no longer be a problem because we've entered this mid-century moment of human um, ingenuity. Um, is the same kind of thing that's, that's at work in, uh, at that time. So I want to ask a question 
that sort of broaches a couple of the topics that we've uh, talked about today. Mm-hmm. Um, so one being right childhood illnesses and the other vaccination and then also like current vaccination hesitancy i uh am explicitly not uh a medical historian in any way Uh, (laughs) like right infectious diseases feature in my work because of genocide but other than that (laughs) infectious diseases feature everywhere yeah so, but then but, again, I'm an infectious disease historian. But yeah, uh, like that's not the the focus of my work. So, the the narrative that we have around vaccine hesitancy, at least in right middle class white groups, right? This is obviously a different story for people who have been subject to colonial violence at the hands of medical practitioners. Um, we'll get there with TB vaccines, right? <laughs> um, but the narrative that we have for like, right, the sort of white Euro-Western American Canadian population is that part of it is because of the distance that we have from these diseases now, people don't do that risk calculation the same way, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas a a woman in the 1950s would have seen the effects of rubella and measles Mm -hmm. and polio. Yep. And so the risk calculation for getting MMR or a polio vaccine or smallpox vaccinations would be very different Mm -hmm. for them. Is that, would you say that that is at least partially an accurate story or... I, I do think there's some truth to that story. I don't buy into the that's everything part right. of the story. Um, absolutely. Uh, if you were alive in the 50s, 60s, um, you would have been aware of like the March of Dimes, which is a yeah. huge um, FDR uh, fundraising. Yeah, FDR. Yeah, FDR. Absolutely. Um, you would have been aware that polio can cause very serious complications. Rubella, again, similar thing. Um, And absolutely, you know, especially rubella is actually a really uh, interesting example because uh, it's a little bit of background. So rubella or German measles, if a woman catches it or has it while she's pregnant, um, it can cause um, developmental issues with the fetus. Um, And so when the vaccine for rubella comes out, there's a lot of marketing and sort of Uh, discourse around be a good mother so you will have a healthy non-disfigured non-disabled child um so i mean there is a moment where people are again like really capitalizing on this fear of disability unfortunately um you know and we can hold that uh you know, as we were talking about with iron lungs, it does get difficult to be someone who has to live in an iron lung. Um, your life gets complicated. Um, and so if you can get a polio vaccine, maybe that is a choice that you might want to make. But I don't think that's the whole story. Um, and the reason for that is, is, you know, kind of touching on that idea of that medical optimism that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, and that's intimately tied to like trust in medicine, basically, like, do you trust the person who's holding the syringe or the little dropper? 
Do you trust what that person represents? Um, and I think we can all relate at this moment to having kind of a de general distrust of the system, whatever yeah. we want to call the system. Of course, for different people, that's going to mean different things. Uh, but I think we can all relate to like being a little bit hesitant to think that the powers that be are really always doing good. Um, yeah. and, and one of the other, you know, uh, things with vaccination history is that because of the nature of what vaccines are and they're trying to prevent infectious disease, um, the state gets intimately involved in administering them. And so you can't get a vaccine without encountering the state. That's just yeah. how it works. And so if you're, you have any suspicion of the systems that make your state, make your government, um, that filters into the vaccine uh, experience as well. So um, you mentioned uh, people who have been experimented on by their yeah. uh, by their governments. The classic example of that is Tuskegee. Um, of yeah, but <laughs> that happens with vaccines as well. In the case of TB um, in Canada, there was a um, it's the uh, Fort uh, Capel Sanatorium in Saskatchewan between 1933 and 1945. Um, they trialed the VCG vaccine vaccine on. Uh, population of Indigenous people um, and, uh, you know, not in a way that we would like. Um, uh, <laughs> that's kind of maybe the mild lack of consent. Lack, yeah, lack of consent, but more than just consent, a sort of approach of, okay, you're an experimental subject because you're convenient and you're here. Yeah. Um, and I can keep you constrained and you're dependent on me uh, because of you know, the entire history of Canada's relationship with its Indigenous populations. Um, so these um, sort of close ties to other forms of medical exactly. experimentation on yeah. residential yeah. school children as well, since that's yeah a thing that is mm -hmm. being talked about again yeah. in Canada. Yeah. There were nutrition experiments. There were these yeah. vaccination experiments among uh, these groups of Indigenous uh, people and in residential schools. I'm certain there were more that we don't know about oh, and the records have either been destroyed or buried somewhere there's no doubt in my mind that if we looked we could find lots more um, but the sort of overarching point here is that or one of the overarching points um, is that these kind of medical interventions are tied to states and how states want to do them and having some dis distrust in that you know especially if you are a person of color or an indigenous person in Canada makes a lot of sense. I'd be pretty hesitant too. Um, so I think, I think that's in the mix as well. The kind of resurgence of vaccine hesitancy, there's a lot in the mix there with the modern anti-vaxxers. Um, but I do think this idea of trust is really central as well as the idea of, you know, you haven't seen people dying of smallpox, so you're not having that same risk calculus. Um, I, that's absolutely in there, no doubt. But I don't think it's as simple as everything boils down to that. I do wonder also, circling back to, you know, these, this idea of risk, right? Mm -hmm. And how you, we, we do kind of go from this idea of like, well, I'm going to get my kid the polio vaccine because of this risk of disability, of having to live in an iron lung, of potentially dying from polio, and how we kind of see that inverted in 
the 90s and Mm -hmm. with this whole like vaccines cause autism Mm -hmm. with Andrew Wakefield, which uh, former Dr. Andrew Wakefield, I want to be very clear on that. He was stripped of his medical license. He lied about everything. His whole thing was a lie. That's that. That's thing number one. And thing number two, autism is not worse than your kid dying. (laughs) But like how that gets can confirm from personal experience. Margot, tell us, do you enjoy being alive? <laughs> is your life right worth now? It? Right now, do I enjoy being alive? <laughs> do you think your life would be better if you had polio or like, or if I was if just dead? Yeah. The actual arguments. If I had gotten measles and died. Yeah. yeah. You know, inquiring minds want to know. But I mean, genuinely, I, I do wonder about how we see this, this idea of risk assessment gets flipped on its head where it goes from, I'm scared of my kid dying or, you know, with, with polio, yes, I'm scared of my child being disabled, but it's, you know, I, I think there's a bit more to it, you know, as we've talked about with the iron lungs, right? Like it's, it's not just my child will be disabled. It's my child will have to live in an iron lung forever. And they really can't like go places or have, you know, it's, it's this thing where you're like, if I can possibly prevent that, I will versus, well, if I give my kid a vaccine, they're going to get autism, which is not, I would argue is not the equivalent of being confined to an iron lung. Yeah, yeah. When I talk about risk, my favorite word to use is that risk is squishy. Um, And I use that because a lot of the time when we talk about, okay, what are the risks of getting this side effect or the risks of this complication, as if risk is some sort of concrete set thing. There is a risk and it means this particular thing at this particular time. Um, But risk is much weirder than that because it all depends on context right it's is it is it your risk as an individual is it your um risk as a person in this place in this time and then if you go into the statistics of how we calculate risk um ultimately risk is a prediction based on the past and so what kind of data you feed into that equation really changes what's going on here so so how we evaluate risk, how we even think about what a risk is, is so influenced by everything around us. Um, And that's not to say that we shouldn't trust our doctors when they say there's a low risk of this and there's a high risk of this. Um, But risk itself is very, is by nature, very open to personal interpretation and, you know, what's around you. And, you know, if you see people dying of some uh, illness or cancer or something uh, everywhere around you, you're going to, you're going to think of the risk of that as higher, whether or not a statistician a hundred thousand miles away, looking at the population level agrees. Um, so how we understand risk and what an individual person sees as the greater risk, uh, really depends. And that's what happened or That's one of the things that happens with the modern anti-vaxxers is they kind of flip that idea of this illness is, Uh, a lower risk than these all these perceived things that I think are actually more terrifying for me and my children Um, yeah and I mean it it is interesting how you talk about risk right when in terms of 
being kind of squishy and malleable and very culture dependent, right? Because when you think about it, it's like, yeah, statistically, getting in a car is one of the most dangerous things we do. Like statistically, you are very likely to die in a car accident, but we don't think twice about driving, putting our kids in the backseat. Well, none of us have kids, but you know, our, the, the collective hour um, versus like airplanes are the safest way to travel statistically, mm-hmm. but lots of people are scared of airplanes. I don't think I know anyone who's like, I will not get in a vehicle, but like, I know lots of people who will not fly. <laughs> Um, so it, it is, you kind do of know, this, you do know one person. That's true. I do know one person. My that, husband is I, deathly afraid I, of cars only ever wants to take trains. Yes. <laughs> I, I stand corrected. I have met one person who refuses to get he doesn't even like cabs. <laughs> like if it is minus 40 and snowing in Montreal and we have to get all the way across the city, he's like, do we have to take a cab? <laughs> <laughs> No, so. no, that's, I mean, I, it's hard to be like, risk hard to be like, they're fine. The cars are fine when like, there is no actual evidence yeah. for the safety of the car, especially in a major metropolitan area. Yeah. But, but the fact that like, your husband is a funny anecdote for this conversation <laughs> yeah, exactly, is a perfect yeah. example of what Sonia's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Risk is squishy. That's my favorite word because um, you, you cannot pin it down. It's, it's just not possible. And every number that we associate with risk is all related to statistics and prediction. That doesn't mean they're not valuable, but it does mean that they are malleable. Does that rhyme enough? <laughs> no, that's like a half rhyme. Like it's a half slant rhyme. rhyme, I think they're called. Sure. Bringing in my grade 10 English skills. <laughs> yeah, snaps for my <laughs> poetry. <laughs> Thank you. So I think most of us, certainly the three of us, I think, remember school vaccinations. So you have to have certain vaccinations to go to school. Um, In my case now to teach at Penn, you have to have uploaded proof of your COVID vaccinations. That's a new thing. Um, So that's definitely, you know, a thing. And I don't know about you guys, if you had the experience of, you know, public health would come to your school and vaccinate your whole class and you take time out of class. Um, No, in the U.S., Really? Yeah, I I was talking about this with some of my colleagues, and I didn't realize, but I think it's more of a Canadian thing. Yeah, no, I remember the nurses coming in, and it would just be like, everybody, line them up, everyone gets vaccinated. Yeah, and we all loved it, because you got to out of class. You have to submit um, records of your vaccinations to enter most public schools, unless you have um, a religious exemption. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that experience of vaccination school registration and, and in our case, Sonia, um, actually being at school, um, that's got a really interesting history because vaccinations and sort of general health hygiene instruction in the early 20th century, uh, public health authorities start thinking, oh, OK, what's the best way to get this out there? And they go for kids. Um, they vaccinate kids and they teach kids like what is hygienic and what is not. Um, and that becomes a way of teaching their parents and getting their parents on board as well. And it happens in some, uh, you know, as with a lot of government authority, there's some dicey stuff going on. Um, 
But they're literally thinking of, oh, okay, I've got all these immigrant parents and they don't know how to be hygienic by our American standards. So let's instruct their children so that their children can then instruct their parents. So in this case, being a child um, becomes um, part of uh, your childhood and part of being a child in America or probably in most of Western Europe and Canada um, is getting your parents on board with um, health standards of the day as their children become like a tool uh, that people use um, both to get the whole population vaccinated or treated for a certain thing um, and also as, uh, as teaching tools um, for, for health. Um, yeah, this, uh, this actually ties into the car conversation because um, when, was it General, General Motors and the, the McNamara team created seatbelts mm -hmm. people didn't want to wear seatbelts and the way that it became standard practice was that it was instructed in schools mm -hmm. and then children started shaming their parents it's also why there's all of the um anti-smoking yes uh, and and it, and it children to shame their parents into behaving the way that public health officials want Yes, literally that happened with my father and his father. Um, Same so with my, my parents. Yeah, so my, my dad, grandpa would be like, tell your parents not to smoke. So I'd go home and shame them. <laughs> yeah, so my, my dad was at school and got some sort of anti-smoking thing. And then with his allowance, went and like bought an anti-smoking patch for my grandfather um, and like brought it home. Um, and then my father became a lung doctor, but that's like... <laughs> A little side note, um, but even things like, you know, those catchy little education phrases and nuggets that are that just come into school: stop, drop, and roll, fire, reduce, safety. reuse, recycle, reduce, re yeah, all of that stuff. You know, um, comes through kids and gets targeted at kids. So that actually becomes part of being a child and having a childhood is being taught these particular things and having particular things injected into your body um, so that you're immune to other stuff um, as well. Yeah, and that starts in the sort of early 20th century-ish, uh, depending on where you are. It start, obviously starts at a different time um, and continues to this day, obviously, if our, our three personal experiences are, uh, are any, uh, any um, uh, indication of that. Yeah, I think the I think the public health culture in the United States is very different with the the schools and what schools are allowed to do, mm -hmm. right? Obviously, like medical medical procedures are like very individualized and like so since we also don't have right, a system of socialized medicine. Um, the schools, schools aren't, unless they have explicit permission from parents are not allowed to give any sort of drug to a child. Um, so if you are like a sick or disabled child, like I was, um, you know, I was a child with chronic migraines and like all sorts of other like weird health things and needed to take a lot of medication at school. You have to bring in a note from 
the parent and the child's doctor that explicitly says like what a teacher is allowed to administer to a child. And um, so like you do have to have uh, your standard vaccinations to um, enter school, but they wouldn't have been done at school. It would be done with your pediatrician and you would have the records and a lot of people are fighting that. So because of um, religious organizations like the Jehovah's Witnesses that can um, advocate for like, this is against my religion to like put things into my child's blood. Um, more and more parents who aren't part of those organizations are using um, religious or personal belief exemptions to not vaccinate their children. Um, and that's why you have like the, the measles outbreaks in California specifically. Yeah. And I, I went to school with someone who never got vaccinated and her parents were anti-vax, um, but she was the only one. And it was like weird when she didn't join us in our class trips, um, you know, to the, to the uh, gym or something to get all our vaccines and have some juice and take some time out of class. Um, but this is one of the reasons why I mentioned earlier um, that I find it really interesting that my institution, University of Pennsylvania, is now mandating that instructors be vaccinated because that's actually, I mean, it makes, makes a lot of sense, seems very logical at this moment in time, um, but for a very long time, the focus was all in children and not necessarily on the teachers, which is not to say that there were not expectations for how teachers should behave and what they should do. Um, but in terms of uploading proof of vaccination, um, I'm not I'm not an expert on teachers and maybe maybe a teacher will come in here and correct me and say that actually, yes, you've had to do this for 50 years. Um, but the um, focus on children um, and, ex and not exclusively on children, but particularly on children um, has, I think, a bit of a longer history. For primary and secondary education, um, I know that at least in Canada, you have to prove that you're vaccinated yeah. because on my work visa, so I have an open work visa, but right now it prevents me from working in primary and secondary schools until I go to like Service Canada and prove to them that like I'm an American, I have all of my standard vaccinations mm -hmm. for like working in North America. Um, and then they'll remove that like qualification from my visa. So like right now, until I go and can prove my health records, which I mean, I have because I needed them to get into McGill. Um, but like until I sh show those records to Service Canada, I can't teach at a primary or secondary school in yeah. Canada. Okay, so so I stand a little bit corrected. Although I think the general idea of these sort of enormous, huge, large scale, um, targeted um, programs, safety things, vaccine things at children, I think the sort of primacy of that, I can still hold on to that. Oh yeah, um, totally. <laughs> Public health through children, I think is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, when, you know, when you think of the fact that um, public health, public health is a weird thing for many reasons, but one of them is that it's not about you. It's never about you. Yes. It's done to you and it's done in you. Um, you know, and in the case of a vaccination, literally changing your body on a molecular scale, but it's not about protecting you. The fact that you yeah. might get protected is kind of a secondary thing. It's about protecting the population. Yeah. Um, 
and making what we now call herd immunity in the case of infectious disease. Um, But that's a really interesting tension in public health. And it gets even more interesting when you think about that all of this, or not all of this, but a lot of this is being done to children. Um, So it's being done in children's bodies and great, it's protecting them. Like, yes, let's all get our kids vaccinated. Um, But it's not about them on the sort of public health level. It's about the population. Um, Just another, you know, another interesting thing about vaccine history, I think probably pretty clear from everything that we've said that we all think we should get our vaccines, but it's still, there's like, there are some interesting tensions in here. Um, It's a, it's a, I think that, that, that tension between, right, the public safety versus individual safety is an interesting tension, but then it's also then layered with another level of individual safety when you get into disability rights and advocacy, because a lot of disability comes with either increased risk from disease or increased risk from being like vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And the herd immunity protects then the most vulnerable who might not be able to protect themselves like by consenting to a vaccine or something like that. Um, And so you have like this individual public individual, like it's like layered on top of each other of like what your vulnerability is. Yes. I think especially, you know, as a Canadian who's lived in the States for a couple of years, um, (laughs) we think we've touched on American individualism in medicine and beyond. Um, But then that gets layered on as well. uh, This American idea that no, it's about me and like my own personal choices. Um, but of course, your personal choices aren't in isolation from the personal choices of other people. So uh, Margaret, you're yeah. totally on point with that uh, metaphor of, or, or that um, description of on top of this and on top of this and then yeah. and layered and layered and layered. Because um, that ultimately is what public health is about, because it has yeah. to be done on an individual level. But that's not the goal. Um, yeah. I did kind of want to use this to have our little round out at the end, because I think this is our little wrap up, because I think this does lend itself to, you know, kind of a big question that this episode leaves us with, which to me is, how do you approach people who are experiencing vaccine hesitancy or who are anti-vaccination, just because, you know, I mean, as we've talked about, uh, your feelings don't care about facts. You can tell someone a million times that cars are super duper dangerous and airplanes are safe, but for the vast majority of people, they are going to keep driving every day and being nervous getting on a plane. So how do you approach people in this way to encourage uh, vaccination of themselves and their children? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I will say up front, I have no perfect answer. Um, and I will also use the cop out of, I'm a historian, not a policy expert. Um, but I think, you know, looking at history and having seen a lot of these patterns happen again and again and again, the most vital thing, in my opinion, is not to approach someone who is anti-vax or hesitant about vaccination. Um, as a, oh my God, you're wrong. Let me just tell you these facts and I'm going to change your mind. Um, There's a lot of anti-anti-vax memes on the internet and they have a very sort of judgmental, dismissive tone. That is not the way to do it. It doesn't work that way. Um, 
And, you know, my opinion is that thinking as we have, uh, while we've been talking about all the intricacies of what's going on in vaccinations and sort of appreciating that, yeah, there's a lot in the mix and kind of starting there, um, I think is probably the best way to go about it. Um, realizing that trust is in the mix, realizing that how we understand risk is in the mix, um, our emotions and, and what we feel and our sort of visceral reactions to something is in the mix. And all of those things are reasonable and, and deserve to be taken seriously. Um, so I think, you know, the way to address vaccine hesitancy is to sort of start from a place of common ground and understanding. We can, as I, as I sort of mentioned earlier, we can all empathize with feeling a little distrustful of the system. If we start there, we're going to have a much better shot um, of addressing someone's vaccine hesitancy than if we go into the conversation saying, oh, well, Wakefield's an idiot. Um, you know, uh, that kind of thing. But um, as with all complicated things and all things involving humans, there's no perfect answer. Uh, but that's, that's my two cents. Start I want to understand. be clear that I also don't think that former doctor Andrew Wakefield mm. was an idiot. He is a very skilled grifter because mm. <laughs> he has made so much money off of people's fear of the combined MMR vaccine and of autism. Yeah. Yeah. Fear <laughs> is huge in this whole thing. Um, yeah. And fear is real. Very, don't dismiss yeah. people's fear um yeah and i think the other thing is i mean again i am no policy expert but at least from what i've heard one of the best ways to get people to be more open to vaccination is to actually talk about your own experience because the more they see it normalized the more you know oh okay this actually isn't scary and it's not dangerous so i'm like I'm telling anyone who will listen, like, yeah, I got both Pfizer shots, like had some rough symptoms after that second one. They're like two days. Like I'm being honest about it. I had the shakes. I had the chills, had the fever. But like after that, I felt fine. Everything's been good. And I say this as someone who uh, very much does. I, I do struggle to not have my knee jerk reaction <laughs> towards this, which is <sighs> just screaming and just like but why don't you get mmr why do you not give baby mmr yeah i mean i i also think that it's modern contemporary anti-vaxxers is also you know intimately tied to um the moment that we're in of how do you make your decisions where does your information come from what's your media literacy like all of that stuff about what actually is truth um, and how we make truth for ourselves in different ways. Um, that's, that's huge. Um, and, I, and I kind of don't think we're going to get rid of vaccine hesitancy until we address the fact that people make decisions in ways that um, aren't always logical, and that's fine. Um, but uh, sort of understanding that that's how humans do things and, and then, you know, coming at the conversation uh, with that understanding. I think that about wraps up our time. Thank you so, so much, Adriana, for coming on the podcast. Where can Thank you people... for having me. I had a great time. Thanks, guys. Well, yeah, and be sure to check out our website because our uh, book club is up and running. Go check out the book. 
give us some of your insights from it. We're very excited. Yep. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Baba Yaga Project. If you want more awesome Baba Yaga content, uh, you should join our Patreon where you can get access to bonus content, exclusive merch, um, our super special Discord, and extra book club content. Um, We want to specifically shout out these Patreon members. Yes, special thank you to John, the Age of Darkness podcast, Christian, Jessica, Jack CW, Whispering Sage, Annie, Adriana, and Katerina. We are delighted to have you on board, and thanks again for helping make the Baba Yaga Project possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week!